0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, September 5th. Walgreens Boots Alliance CEO Rosalind Brewer has stepped down from the company, leaving it now with two vacant top executive roles. The Deerfield based company said in a press release the morning of Friday, the 1st, that the board and Brewer had mutually agreed she would leave the company and its board effectively the day prior. Brewer's departure comes shortly after CFO James Kehoe announced in July that he was leaving for an opportunity in the tech sector. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis has more. People in the industry, industry analysts, that's typically who we're looking to right now um,
1: for guidance on what this move means. But, you know, some of them are saying it was sort of sudden and abrupt, especially because Roz uh, hadn't even served three years at, at Walgreens. You know, she joined in March 2021. So she's had a, a pretty short tenure there, but other analysts have said that you know they did sort of see this coming, particularly because of how Walgreens has been performing lately. Um, you know, in their most recent earnings call, they slashed their guidance. Uh, they said their healthcare segment is growing slower than anticipated, and we saw a big drop in the company's stock price at that point, point. Uh, and that was just in June.
0: And so, tell me about the plan moving forward. An interim CEO has been appointed, uh, someone from within the company. And uh, how long might that period go before a decision is made about a about a new permanent CEO?
1: You know, that's a good question that Walgreens has not given any guidance on. Uh, so, you know, so for more context, they appointed Ginger Graham, who is the company's. Current lead independent board director as interim CEO. And, uh, you know, Walgreens has said they are, they've Tapped an executive search firm. They are full speed ahead on looking for a permanent replacement for Ross Brewer. Uh, but this is a process that could take months. Um, you know, it's just like typical in these big executive searches at fortune 500, 100 companies that, that, uh, it takes a while to fill those positions. I think what's interesting about Ginger Graham being the interim CEO is that she actually is someone who has extensive healthcare experience. Um, You know, over a 30 year career, she's had leadership positions at pharmaceutical companies and other types of healthcare companies. And I think the board. Really wanted someone with that type of experience right now because, you know, as you know, Amy, we've talked extensively about Walgreens' ambitions to transform into a healthcare company.
0: Brewer will advise Walgreens as it searches for a permanent CEO, a role for which she will receive a monthly consulting fee of $375,000 through February of 2024, according to a Walgreens SEC filing. Davis reported that Brewer has also been given a separation and transition agreement that provides her with $9 million in cash severance, which is equal to two times the sum of her base salary plus target annual bonus, according to the filing. She'll also receive payment of any annual bonus earned in the current fiscal year and will vest in the remaining unvested portion of her long-term incentive package. Brewer, Walgreens' first Black CEO and first woman in the role, joined the company just as COVID-19 vaccines were becoming available to the public, making its pharmacies a key destination for many seeking vaccination. With more people in stores, Walgreens' business saw a boost that has more recently begun to falter. Brewer also joined Walgreens at a time when the company was embarking on a transformation to shift away from its traditional pharmacy retail roots and towards a healthcare company that offers primary care in its network of more than 8,000 stores.
1: You know, what I will say is that, and analysts believe this too, I think everyone that's sort of watching this realizes that Roz's departure. Is a reflection of this struggling healthcare segment, and the fact that in order to make it a success, and it at this point it needs to be a success because Walgreens has invested tens of billion dollars into it. Um, but its its success hinges on a leader who really understands the healthcare market and healthcare delivery space as well, not just you know pharmacy um, or sort of these other. Healthcare adjacent subsectors, but really what it means to employ doctors and provide patients care
0: in a physical setting. I'll continue the conversation with Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis, right after this about one blockbuster drug from AbbVie on President Biden's drug price negotiation list. Want some wins? WinTrust Community Banks is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in personal banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. That's one win, and that's for the second year in a row. That's a win-win. And you can now earn even more interest with WinTrust new savings rates. That's a win-win-win. To get your savings some wins, visit wintrust.com slash lock new rates. That's wintrust.com slash lock new rates. Members FDIC for J.D. Power 2020 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. I'm back with Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, here to talk about other stories from the healthcare sector. There's been a lot of conversation around President Biden's drug price negotiation list, a lot of analysis around how that will affect various biopharma companies, but also consumers. Um, Tell me about how that will impact AbbVie. You know, on the the
1: list that came out recently, AbbVie only had one drug on there, and it's their leukemia drug, Imbruvica, and this is a drug that accounted for about 13% of AbbVie's total sales last year, and it's also a drug that AbbVie co-developed with Janssen Biotech. At first, when we saw this on the list, I, just from what I knew about AbbVie at that moment, was sort of anticipating this to be a big threat to AbbVie's business and their revenues, right? I mean, this is, you know, a drug that's now going to be targeted by Medicare negotiations. You know, the industry calls it price controls, and the industry at large has really been fighting against the concept of the government negotiating drug prices. And so, I was expecting this to be real bad news for AbbVie. But when I started digging into it, it turns out that this may not be as bad as I originally thought primarily because Imbruvica has already been a drug that's been seeing sales declines uh, year over year. It already faces some competition from other drug makers, uh, you know, for a similar type of leukemia drug. Um, And I spoke with analysts who said that, you know, this really won't have a big impact on AbbVie's bottom line, essentially. And I think what further made that point was AbbVie stock price. When the list came out, it was relatively unchanged. It was down maybe less than a percent. You know, some of that has to do with the fact that investors were anticipating Imbruvica being on the negotiation list. But analysts I talked to said it's also because this won't really have a big impact on AbbVie's business in the near term still yet to be seen what other AbbVie drugs may be up for negotiation in years to come. My understanding is those other drugs could include AbbVie's Renvoke or its other drug called Venclexta. Something like Renvoke could be more threatening to AbbVie if the price were negotiated, primarily because it has more time on an exclusivity list where it's not facing biosimilar competition.
0: Right, right. Which is the case for Humira, which, which uh, we've talked about before. I think the word that was used a lot when, when that started to shift was the moat, like the patent moat. And when that came down, suddenly a lot of biosimilars were uh, able to enter the market.
1: Right. And, you know, I think what's interesting about this negotiation list is, you know, if you're not super familiar with how the pharma industry works, you may have expected Humira to be on the negotiation list just because it's AbbVie's best-selling drug. You know, it's what has made AbbVie the multi-billion dollar company that it is. Uh, But because that drug already faces at least eight biosimilars uh, as of this year. Uh, the government won't try to negotiate it because the expectation is that that biosimilar competition will regulate prices for patients uh, across the board. So that's why Humira was not targeted.
0: In talking about Humira, you also noted in reporting that it's likely to face a separate penalty under a different provision uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act
1: that's right. So Humira was on a list of Medicare Part B drugs earlier this year and Medicare Part B drugs are single source medications and biological products, you know, which is what Humira is. And it was on this list of drugs and, you know, their parent companies that will face a penalty under this other provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that prohibits drug prices rising faster than inflation. So according to the government, you know, Humira was raising prices on its medication faster than inflation. And, you know, last I checked, I mean, a single dose of Humira runs for maybe six to seven thousand dollars each, so it's pretty significant already. And so, while Humira won't be on the negotiation list, it's not sort of getting away scot free, so to speak. Um, the drug is, you know, being watched by the government and will face other penalties.
0: So as analysts are talking about uh, the expectation that other drugs will be added, what will that process look like? Is that going to be uh, a you know quarterly or annual, or is that just going to be added as as it comes up?
1: Yeah. So our understanding of the program now is that CMS will be reassessing drugs on the market on an annual basis and adding new drugs to its negotiation list every year. Uh, So this first list will go into effect in 2026. That's the first date in which these drugs can be negotiated. Uh, And then, you know, we expect lists to come out in 27 and 28 and beyond. Um, My understanding is once a drug appears on a list, it can stay on the following year's list or the list will get longer, so to speak. I think it's more that they're just adding additional drugs every year to sort of roll this out in phases to not shock the pharmaceutical industry too much. But yeah, that's the idea.
0: All right, I want to shift to another story that you reported on recently. Uh, so, after a round of layoffs that led to an investigation by the National Labor Relations Board, Howard Brown Health is reinstating uh, a couple dozen of the more than 60 workers that it terminated late last year. Tell me about this.
1: Yeah, so, you know, this is a saga I've been following at Howard Brown since probably late last year when we first got word that Howard Brown was facing financial challenges. They say, or at least they said at the time, that they were facing a $12 million revenue gap and that it would require them to lay off about 60 employees. And right before that announcement, hundreds of their employees had voted to join a union. So at this point, when Howard Brown is ready to you know, conduct these layoffs, they have to negotiate with the union essentially to get them approved. And my understanding is there was a lot of back and forth. And according to the union, they did not come to an agreement with Howard Brown management on how many people to lay off. And the union also said there was little evidence that the layoffs were necessary financially. So that's what it brings us to present day. Um, you know, since those layoffs, uh, the union has filed complaints with the National Labor Relations Board, which opened an investigation into Howard Brown. And back in July, we we learned that the NLRB had found merit in eight of the Illinois Nurses Association's charges. They filed sixteen total, and that. You know, some of the merit there was that they had unlawfully bargained over and implemented the layoffs without reaching a legitimate agreement with the union.
0: And so now these workers are being reinstated. What what is that process like?
1: The NLRB proposed an agreement to Howard Brown Management, uh, saying that they had to offer the jobs back to all 61 employees that were laid off. Uh, According to Howard Brown, only 25 of them are coming back. The others have either found new jobs or don't want to come back to Howard Brown, Um, but we do know that 25 are coming back and that they are in a range of roles. They are therapists, information technology workers, even graphic design roles are among them. And The other part of this agreement with the NLRB was that Howard Brown has to offer consequential damages to all 61 workers as well.
0: Hmm. And, And what does that look like typically?
1: My understanding is that's back pay for when employees were terminated but
0: should have still been on the job technically. And does that resolve the NLRB investigation or are there other things still pending with this?
1: So my understanding is that there are other issues still pending. I asked the union about that and they were unable to share details, uh, but they did signal that this isn't the end of the NLRB's investigation into Howard Brown. You know, there were some other allegations uh, the union posed. And so we're sort of waiting now to see what else comes from that investigation. But I will say that layoffs was the pinnacle issue in this saga. Of course, that has a huge impact on these workers' lives and their careers and was the key incident that the union was upset about.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, I'm sure lots more reporting on on both of these topics to come, so we will have to visit that down the road. Thanks so much for stopping through today, Catherine. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a look at how the Hollywood strikes could translate to a a half-a-billion-dollar impact in Illinois. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository, Chicago's Food Bank, is on a mission to end hunger. But the need is still above pre-pandemic levels. One in five households in our community is experiencing food insecurity, and families with children are at greatest risk. September is Hunger Action Month, so help your neighbors by donating today. The Greater Chicago Food Depository, chicagosfoodbank.org. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's sister publication Automotive News reported that Ford Motor Company on Thursday said its hourly plant workers could earn $98,000 in wages, overtime, and bonuses over the next year under contract it has offered the UAW. Ford said the proposed contract would increase benefits and raise workers' pay at least 15 percent, including lump-sum payouts. Automotive News noted in reporting that workers covered by the deal would see their pay increase from an average of $78,000 in 2022 to $92,000 in the first year of their contract, including overtime and bonuses, according to Ford. They would also receive $38,000 worth of health care and other benefits, according to the automaker. Ford detailed its proposal after UAW President Sean Fain criticized the company's offer at length during a live stream on Facebook. Fain said Ford's response to the UAW's demands, quote, not only fails to meet our needs, it insults our very worth. Automotive News further noted that Fain said the UAW had submitted complaints to the National Labor Relations Board, saying the two automakers have not adequately responded to the union's contract demands. The contract with the Detroit Three expires September 14th. Earlier in negotiations, Fain had publicly raised grievances with Stellantis, saying the company refused to reopen the idled Belvedere assembly plant, among other things. A Stellantis spokesperson in a statement said the company was, quote, shocked by Fain's accusation that the company was not bargaining in good faith. Automotive News further noted that FAIN also said that Ford's proposed wage increase is below what the UAW is asking for. Also reporting that Ford has offered to reduce the length of time it takes a new hire to receive top wages from eight years to six, while the UAW wants to eliminate the grow-in period entirely. Automotive News further reported that additionally, Fain said Ford wants unlimited use of temp workers, has refused to reinstitute cost-of-living wage adjustments, will not increase retiree pay, and will not agree to the UAW's demand for a program that would give workers their normal pay during a layoff. He also said Ford wants to change the current profit-sharing formula, which pays workers $1 for every $1 million in pre-tax North American profits. Automotive News further noted that Fain's comments on Thursday on Facebook echoed similar complaints he had with initial proposals from Stellantis, which he tossed into a trash can during an earlier live stream. White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf told a selected group of reporters on Thursday that he has no plans to sell the team. Reinsdorf said, according to an account of the interview in the Chicago Tribune, quote, I'm going to couch this so nobody writes that I thought of selling. He continued, quote, friends of mine have said, why don't you sell? Why don't you get out? My answer has always been, I like what I'm doing, as bad as it is, and what else would I do? Reinsdorf cited a story here in Crane's Chicago business as the cause of the latest round of speculation that the team ownership is in play. In an August 21st story, Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported, citing knowledgeable sources, that Reinsdorf is considering moving the Sox from Guaranteed Rate Field in Bridgeport when the team's lease expires six years from now. Reinsdorf, however, insisted otherwise to the assembled reporters, though allowed himself a fair amount of wiggle room on the stadium question, however, adding, quote, ever since the article came out, I've been reading that I've been threatening to move to Nashville. That article didn't come from me, but it's obvious if we have six years left, we've got to decide what's the future going to be. He also said the team has not yet begun discussions with the Illinois Sports Authority. Trains Brandon Dupre reported that as the strike by Hollywood's largest unions continues into September, the economic fallout is just starting to take shape, with the potential to cost Illinois as much as $500 million in lost expenditures from the film and television industry if it's not resolved by the end of the year. Hollywood writers, represented by the Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, went on strike in early May and were joined by industry actors in the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG-AFTRA, in July, halting production in the entertainment industry across the country. New York and California, where the sector has its largest presence, have likely felt the brunt of the financial fallout, but Illinois, where the entertainment industry last year saw a record $700 million spend by film and television companies, is not immune. From January through June of this year, the state recorded $151 million in expected expenditures by entertainment companies, falling short of the $304 million spent during the same period last year. The estimates come from entertainment companies, according to the Illinois Film Office, and represent the most accurate way possible to gauge the financial impact locally. Illinois officials did not yet have available data for July, which is historically the busiest month by a large margin, or for August, but industry observers told Cranes that all major film and television productions have been shut down during the strike. Duprey noted in reporting that part of the reason July sees more than triple the TV and film spending than any other month is because it's the month when the so-called One Chicago Collection, which includes Chicago PD, Chicago Med, and Chicago Fire, produces most of its shows for the upcoming season. And those productions make up a large chunk of the state's overall annual numbers. Dupre further noted in reporting that the decline in production in Illinois has also meant thousands of industry workers have been without jobs. Of the roughly 160,000 total SAG-AFTRA members nationwide, 5,400 live in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana, and 85 percent of them are performers, according to Eric Chaudron, executive director of SAG-AFTRA's Chicago chapter. Add to that the more than 100 writers in the WGA who live in the Midwest. In a statement, the Illinois Film Office said that it is confident that once a resolution is reached, Illinois will, quote, immediately see TV and film productions resume. The two unions, which are negotiating separately with the production companies and studios, represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, are seeking higher pay and more job security in an entertainment industry some say has been upended by streaming services and further disrupted by emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence. Duprey reported that it's unclear how far along the discussions are. One source familiar with the situation told Cranes that there has been a significant change in the atmosphere around the talks recently and, quote, things are moving in the right direction, though no timetable has been given.